Well, good morning. This is Grandparents' Day, which is a big deal here at Indiana Wesleyan University. We've been doing Grandparents' Day for 20 years. And um, there is a couple here today, Yvonne and Elaine Jensen. You've been, this is your 10th consecutive year to be here as grandparents. Yeah. Now we like it when students get through a little faster than that. <laughs> but I think Chad and Colin are maybe their second or third set of grandkids that uh, have made it through IWU. I, uh, here we have 500 plus grandparents from 22 different states as far away as California and Vermont. And so it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks for coming. Grandparents Day is a big deal to you. It's a big deal to us. And we say welcome, welcome, welcome. But I know this, I know that some of you students are sitting here and you're not blessed by having your grandparents here today and it feels a little awkward to you maybe and some of you think, man, if I'd remembered this, I would have slept in. I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Now I'm trying to, th I've been working and saying, how can I connect with everybody in the room, whether you're a grandpa or a kid or grandpa's here or not or grandma, whatever that might be. So I thought maybe I'd just confess right up front, I am a grandfather. Uh, my grandchildren live in California. Let me show you a picture of them. <laughs> that is uh, Stella and Vivian and Leo. Stella's seven years old. She is all that. She puts her little sister to bed every night, crawls in bed with her, reads her a couple of stories, helps her go to sleep, and then crawls out on the sofa in the living room and reads for an hour before she goes to bed. Stella's amazing. And uh, Leo is four and is just fun. He loves to have fun. He loves to build stuff. He loves to tease. He loves to joke. As a four-year-old, he sometimes misses the line between mischief and disobedience, but, you know, that's what four-year-olds do. And Vivi, the, the, uh, who's not quite two, uh, we're not quite sure what Vivi is yet. She's sweet. We know that. But we're waiting to watch her grow up and uh, develop more of her own character and personality and character traits. So those are my grandchildren. About the only thing that's wrong with them, well, there are two things. One is they live in California, which is way too far away. And as I stand here as dean of the chapel. I love Indiana West and I love being here, but, but there's part of me that says, why am I here? Grandparents, you understand that, don't you? There's another thing you need to understand about my family. You need to understand, I was raised in Chicago. I bleed Cubs. The problem with that is I was raised in an era when the Cubs just were lousy. I mean, they were so bad. The last time they were in the World Series was 1945. Some of you here were alive back then, but not many of you. Every year, every year, I, I started the year thinking, this could be the year. This could be the year. And every year, I ended the year saying, wait till next year. Because <laughs> you do understand, C-U-B-S stands for completely useless by September. <laughs> yeah. 
There's a Cardinal fan up here who knows that. <laughs> I loved the Cubs. I loved watching them try to win. And, and then every once in a while, they'd tease me. I was 19 years old. It was 1969. The Cubs had the best record in baseball. They had a huge lead going into September. It was not possible for them not to get into the World Series. Only they didn't. <laughs> the Mets came rushing on and overtook them. I've hated the Mets ever since. 1984, the Cubs won the first two games of a playoff in Chicago, of a five-game playoff. They went to San Diego. All they, had, all they had to do was win one game in San Diego. That's all. I still have in my mind the picture of the ground ball going between Leon Durham's legs and watching them lose. I could recount for you a lot of different those stories. In 2003... They were five outs away from the World Series. Five outs. They had a lead. Some of you may remember this. Again in the air, down the left field line. A reaching into the stands and could get it. He's riveted with a fan. Yeah, that was bad. Some of you may remember that as the Steve Bartman ball. Steve Bartman was a Chicago Cubs fan, loved the Cubs, came to the game, had great seats, tried to catch it like the other fans. He happened to touch it. Moises Alou didn't catch it. The Cubs collapsed right there. Five outs away. The shortstop made an error. The pitcher walked a couple of guys. The Cubs lost, did not make it to the World Series. Bartman had to move from Chicago. I could go on and on, but I think I'm depressed enough. <laughs> 2016, the Cubs have the best record in baseball. Yeah. But they were playing the Giants, and they won the first two games. And then all they needed to do was win one more. That's familiar to me. And they lost. And I began to get stressed about it. And I was trying to figure that out because they have the best record in baseball. And then a, a friend of mine said, somewhere Ivan Pavlov is smiling. Because that Pavlovian response of being used to losing and used to losing and used to losing. I'm really hoping that this year is not a wait till next year. I'm really hoping that this year is next year, that this is the time we win, and I will celebrate that. But even as I say that, I'll celebrate it with a little disappointment. Because I see I raised my kids to be Cubs fans. And then my daughter made a horrible decision. She married a Houston Astros fan. Yeah. Who took her to California where he's raising my grandchildren to be Dodgers fans. And the Dodgers and the Cubs will be playing tomorrow in the National League Championship starting tomorrow afternoon. And I'm going, when the Cubs win, I can't even celebrate with my grandkids. I've wanted to send them Cubs gear and that it's not allowed in that household. Because not only is he a fan of the Dodgers and, and, and the Astros, but he hates the Cubs. And so there's a generational break here that really is going to create a mess. 
And I'd love to celebrate with them, but I can't. But you know what? That's just baseball. As hard as it is for some of us to imagine, it doesn't matter that much whether you cheer for the Cubs or the Cardinals. (laughs) The Cubs or the Dodgers or the Mets or the Astros. I mean, it's just baseball. I want to talk to you about today about something far more important. Living a life that has the legacy of faith in it. Whomever you cheer for in baseball or whether you cheer for baseball at all. The Bible is not actually full of a lot of great stories about grandparents and their grandchildren. There are no stories about a little kid crawling up on grandpa's lap and saying, read me a story and that kind of stuff. But there is this passage of scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is writing to his protege in the gospel, Timothy, and he says this to him in verse 3. Timothy, I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience just as my ancestors did. Night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. I mean, Paul was invested in this young man's life. He says, I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we're together again. He said, I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and and your mother Eunice. And I know that that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Timothy had a mom and a grandmother who loved the Lord. But we do need to understand that the faith life is never inherited. Just because mom's a Christian and just because grandpa's a Christian doesn't mean necessarily that you will be. Each one of us has to make our own decision to follow Christ. My dad was a pastor. My mom was a godly leader in the church. And yet I had to make that decision. Now I will tell you, sometimes the decision is made easier by how your parents and grandparents live. Sometimes it's more comp- it's complicated by that. But whatever it is, you students make your own decision for faith. Now Paul writes to Timothy, I know about your grandmother's faith. And I know faith's in real, real to you. But here's some advice to you, Tim. Fan into flame the gift of the Spirit. You have to take responsibility, he says, for your spiritual potential and for what God expects you to do with what he's given you. Now, Timothy had been given a special capacity by by God. Paul talks about a spiritual gift here. It, It was a specific spiritual ability, and as you read the advice that Paul gives him elsewhere, you think probably it has something to do with church leadership, and it has something to do with preaching the word, and some of you are sitting here thinking, I'm not a religion major. I'm not a church ministry major, so what does this have to do with me? Granted, many of you are not religion majors. Many of you not, don't plan to be pastors or, or, or worship leaders or whatever. But there's still a connecting point for you because God has gifted each of you with spiritual possibility. And God has gifted each of you with spiritual capacity. And God has gifted each of you with something from him for you to be used for the world. And you have a responsibility, and you get to determine what you do with that. You have the capacity for a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. You have the command to live obediently as you do God's will. You have the challenge from God to make a difference in the world, and you're responsible. No one else but you. 
And the Bible says, fan this into flame. It, just as a fire can begin to die down and you can fan it back to life. That's what Paul says to Timothy and through the word to us. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said the tendency of fire is to go out. Watch the fire on the altar of your heart. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed how easy it is to coast spiritually in life. It's true in my life. It's true in your life. As students, it's true. We get busy and we begin to make excuses. For you, maybe it's school stuff, academics, athletics, activities, friends, work, romance for some of you. For others, you're thinking, me, hope. But you're just busy. And you just don't pay as much attention to your spiritual vitality as you might. And the fact is, we're surrounded by spiritual stuff. We have chapel every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And, and sometimes that get, feels like it gets old to us. And, and if we're not careful, we make a mistake with what we do with it. For some of us, it gets so routine that we lose any sense of amazement that we get to gather three times a week to worship. To honor God. Four of you go, yeah. <laughs> I understand that. Do you know one of the things our alumni frequently say after they graduate? They say, there were times I didn't like going to chapel, but now out in the world, I wish I had a chance to focus on God like that. You get to decide what you do with chapel. Another danger that some of us experience is we've let school-sponsored God stuff be the primary God stuff in our life. It's easy to get in the habit of just being surrounded by spiritual stuff and kind of saying, well, we're sort of spiritual because we sort of are involved by that. It's easy to coast spiritually. It's easy to get in the habit of thinking it will be easier then when some other time comes. Uh, can, I, can I tell you just a little bit about my life? When I was in junior high, I knew I was supposed to have devotions every day, to read the Bible and pray. That was what our Sunday school teacher said, and that was what my parents wanted me to do, and that was our youth sponsor challenged us to do. And so I said, yeah, I'm all in at that, and I started, and I did that for a little while, and then missed a day, and then went back, and then missed a day, and went back, and then missed two days and four days. And pretty soon, I was not having my devotional time with the Lord, my quiet time with God as regularly as I should. And I struggled with that, but I thought, you know what, I will have a fresh start when I get to high school. When I get to high school, it will be better. I'll, I'll do this again. And I got to high school, and the same thing happened. And I remember thinking, it will be better when I get to college. It was Marion College back then, but it was here. And I was majoring in religion. And I thought, That'll be an easier time to focus. And I got here, and just like you, I got busy, and I got distracted, and it wasn't any easier. And I thought, you know, it's going to be better when I get married and when I'm actually a pastor. And you know what I had to discover in my life? The, the discipline of spending time in the Word and the discipline of prayer and the, the discipline of, of bringing your life to God's feet again and again and again and again and again on a regular basis, it never gets easier. Paul says God did not give us a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-discipline. There comes a time in our life where we have to quit saying, wait till next year, and we have to start saying, this year is next year. Paying attention to your spiritual life never gets easier based on circumstances. It's always a choice. 
It's not always a choice whether you lean into chapel or not, whether you get something out of it or not. It's your choice. It's always a choice to pray or quiet yourself before God in the midst of the busyness of life. That's true whether you're 18 or whether you're 80. It's always a choice to crawl out of bed on Sunday morning and go to church. And some of you wake up on Sunday morning and say, I was in chapel Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I don't know. We, well, we sort of make you come. And on Sunday, nobody does. And it's an offering you give to God. It's always a choice to find a way to serve someone in need. It's always a choice to say no to temptation. It's always a choice to say yes to create an environment that makes obedience easier. It's always a choice to us, and it's always your choice. That's what Paul coached Timothy about. That's what people who've walked the faith journey ahead of you would say. If you ask your parents your, and grandparents, tell me about your faith life and the decisions you've made, they would point out those times they had to make those choices to say yes to God and to say no to other things. Last winter, I talked to you just a little bit about, about a guy named Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts was a college student in Wales in 1904. For those of you who need a geography lesson, Wales is part of the British Isles. Evan Roberts was in college, and the Lord began to nudge him spiritually about what might be, what could be, what God might want to do in his life and through his life. And he began to pray a simple prayer. It was, Lord, bend me. Bend me to my knees in front of you. Bend my will to yours. Shape my life. Help me to be what you want me to be. I'll be whatever you want me to be. And as Evan Roberts prayed over the course of several months, God began to give him a message that he became convinced he should preach. So he had this little four-point message, a simple message, and he decides he's supposed to go home and tell this pastor at his home church to let him preach. And he goes home, and he says, Pastor, the Lord has given me a message to preach. And the pastor says, well, I'll let you do it if I have time after my sermon. And that didn't happen that morning. That didn't happen that Sunday night. Didn't happen the next Sunday morning. The second Sunday night, the pastor said to him, Brother Roberts believes he has a word from the Lord for us. And Evan Roberts gets up and preaches a four-point message. Very simple. Let me tell you what they were, and we'll talk about them a little bit. The first thing Evan Roberts tells them is they're supposed to confess any known sin. Confess all known sin. You know what we do with sin? We have a tendency to make excuses for our sin. Everybody does it. Or we have a tendency to hide our sin. I don't want to confess what's going on because I'm not proud of it. Or we have a tendency to think there's nothing we can do about it. We're just not strong enough to say no to temptation. But Evan Roberts says, confess all known sin. That was the first point of his sermon. Second point of his sermon was remove anything in your life that you're in doubt about. Remove anything that you are in doubt about. Anything that, you know, there's some things in our lives where you go, well, I know it's not the best thing to do, but, you know, it's not necessarily clearly sin. And he says, if there's anything that you're saying, I know it's not God's best, but Evan Roberts says, stop doing that. Remove anything that might create an environment where it becomes easier, easier to fall to temptation. That was the second point. Here's his third point. Be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. 
right away. No wait till next year kind of faith. No, next year will be easier. No, when I get out of school, it will be easier. Decide right now that whatever God says to you, you'll say yes. In fact, say yes right now so that whenever God says it, you've already given the answer. I preached a sermon once and had a guy come up to me right after service. He says, Pastor, I want you to know the answer is yes. And I said, well, what's the question? He said, whatever you ask me to do. Well, you know, I don't know that you need to do that with me, but you need to do that with God. The answer is yes, God. Now it's just the question is, what is the question that you're asking me? Be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. And the fourth thing he said is publicly confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just I'm, a, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. But that God's been dealing with me about this thing. And I confess that I've struggled with it and I'm, and I'm surrendering it and I'm all in and do it publicly. And some of us are a little hesitant to do that because we've tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed often enough that we're afraid to say, I'm all in on this because we don't want to look silly if we fail again and we're afraid we can't make it. But God did not give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And that's the challenge I proclaim to you today. By the way, back in Wales in 1904 and 1905, when Evan Roberts preached that sermon, some people began coming to the altar and confessing their sin and proclaiming themselves for Christ. The service went on for a while. They went out and found their friends. There was such a presence of the Holy Spirit there. They brought them back. The revival carried on in Wales for a year and a half. 100,000 people. 100,000 people came to Christ in that time. Crime rates dropped. All kinds of crime rates dropped. The police actually formed gospel quartets. Literally, because they didn't have anything to do. Would that be amazing? One of the great revivals in history, and what if God began to spark that in our lives and in your life? What if there's an Evan Roberts here? What if you're it? Paul wrote to Timothy and said, that fear you have, that thing that holds you back, that thing that keeps you from confessing me, that thing that keeps you from declaring your commitment, that fear is not a gift from God. It is not from God. It's the evil one trying to shut you up and shut you down. Take responsibility to declare, to discipline, and to fan your life, your spiritual life into flame. You know, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be watching the Cubs. I hope it's a couple of weeks. And I'll cheer if I don't have to wait till next year. But you know what's far more important than that, that over the next couple of years, I'll be watching you, and your parents will be watching you, and your grandparents will be watching you, and together, like Paul, we will pray for you constantly. I had professors who prayed for me for years. Your spiritual mentors will, your coaches will, your parents will, your grandparents will. Hebrews chapter 7 even says that Jesus lives to intercede for you. He's praying for you. 
what if, what if this year were your year? What if this was the year that something happened in your life in response to a nudge of God that set you afire for him and the world changed? What if it happened in you this year so that you would begin to build a legacy that will last a lifetime and beyond your lifetime for eternity? Why wait till next year? Why not right now? Would you pray with me? Father, this room is filled with men and women from 16 or 17 years old up to into their 80s. Each one of us has spiritual possibility. Each one of us has the responsibility to fan it into flame. You've given us the gift and it's the tendency is to let it just die out. And I would pray this day you would not just allow us to easily be people who simply listen to the word and forget what it says, but that we might be people who listen to the word and do what it says to the glory of Jesus Christ and to our great blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.